This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Wild Initiative Podcast Network. Learn more and check out all the shows at thewildinitiative.com. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, where we talk all things fishing, conservation, and the outdoors. Today on the show, I'm joined by Jake Roy, fishing guide at Wilderness Place Lodge. All right, welcome to episode 18 of the Fish Untamed Podcast. Today, I got a chance to talk to Jake Roy, who is a fishing guide at Wilderness Place Lodge in Alaska. I actually initially got connected with Jake through Reddit and asked him if it'd be okay for me to pick his brain about how to do a do-it-yourself trip up to Alaska, since that's definitely something that's on my bucket list and I'm sure is on the bucket list of a lot of people. And I particularly wanted to talk about doing a DIY trip to Alaska because I think that Alaska is one of the few places that seems pretty exotic to most people in the lower 48, but doesn't break the bank to to go and do. We go over everything from when to go, to how to hire a bush plane, to escape the crowds a bit, to how to actually get your fish packaged and shipped back home. Uh, It was just packed full of good nuggets about how to plan your own trip up there. So without further ado, here is my chat with Jake Roy. All right, cool. Well, do you just want to start by telling me uh, about your fishing background and then maybe a little bit about guiding up in Alaska? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I actually have a little bit of a different story starting fishing. Um, I haven't really fished my whole life like a lot of people have. Uh, I started when I was 18 fly fishing um, and then just kind of got way too involved, way too, (laughs) like everybody does. uh, It's pretty, it's pretty addicting sport. 
uh, for those of us that are really into it. But, um, you know, just kind of took it from there and then got into guiding. Didn't really, didn't really want to know what I do wanted to do with my life. So, you know, I figured I'd go to Alaska while I could. <laughs> Here I am. So. Fair enough. <laughs> so did you start off fly fishing or did you pick up uh, like gear fishing first and then switch over? Um, so I, I was lucky enough. My family had a, a little cottage on a lake when I was growing up. So I had always kind of just tossed, you know, little swim baits and stuff like that, like once a summer for bass. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was never really into it. And then um, uh, I just kind of picked up a fly rod because th- I thought it looked cool. And that's that's what I ended up doing, <laughs> sticking with it. And now I probably won't ever fish anything else. <laughs> So what uh, what got you up to Alaska to guide? Did you guide anywhere else first, or like what what triggered that that uh, you know application process? I guess. I mean, uh, like I said, I just kind of didn't really want to know what I was doing with my life for a while, and then you know I kind of got sick of sitting behind a desk, and Alaska's kind of the path to get into the industry for guiding. Um, you know, at least for first time guides. And I had never really gotten around here. I mean, kind of like everybody, you know, you show some friends around or whatever, you know, you introduce a few people to it. And then um, I actually got certified as a casting instructor last year. So, uh, you know, that definitely helps in doing that kind of stuff. Um, mm. You know, just kind of gets you into the industry, gets your foot in. And I started going to trade shows and just, you know, talking to people and, uh, I applied and uh, got a job up there and I've been going there ever since. <laughs> so, so you're not up there, uh, like year round then? No, no, no. Okay. I am, uh, I am there seasonally in the summer for, for our summer season. So, uh, in the winter I am, you know, I'm back on the East coast for right now. Um, in the future next winter, I'll be hopefully either in South America guiding, uh, or on the Olympic peninsula guiding for winter steelhead. So. Oh, that'd be, that'd be a pretty nice setup. <laughs> that would, that would be nice. That's the, that's the ultimate goal, but we'll see what happens. So, so what do you do uh, the rest of the year right now? Uh, right now, the rest of the year, I just work, uh, you know, in an office job and okay. they allow me to take the summer off basically. And, well, that's, and that's a nice perk. <laughs> go and guide. Yeah. It's, it's pretty good, you know, having that opportunity and, um, you know, it's a, definitely cool to have an understanding employer <laughs> that lets me do that. And then, you know, eventually I'll be guiding full time. So that'll be, that'll be nice, but. Awesome. Where, uh, where in Alaska do you guide? So I'm actually not in Bristol Bay. Like a lot of people are, uh, I'm in an area called the Matanuska Susitna Valley, uh, on a little river called Lake Creek. Um, it's about 75, uh, air miles, uh, Northwest of Anchorage, right on the Southwest edge of Denali national park. Okay. Is the fishing similar to what what people would encounter in somewhere like Bristol Bay, like somewhere that people are a little more familiar with? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we got all five species of Pacific salmon, um, rainbow trout, um, grayling, and every now and then we'll we'll encounter a dolly varden or uh, or an arctic char, but uh, they're not as abundant as they would be in Bristol Bay in that Mm -hmm. drainage. Um, And then we also have a, there's a little chain of lakes uh, upriver from us um, where we fish for pike. So, oh, cool. Yeah. So we've got uh, quite the variety there. And, um, you know, we're a tributary of the Yentna River, which is a big river. And that's even a bigger tributary uh, of the Susitna River. So we're on that drainage. 
Okay. Um, and that's, like I said, it's, it's about an hour bush flight from Anchorage. So traveling there, you would fly into Anchorage, hop on our charter and then, you know, float plane right out to our, uh, to our lodge. So. Okay. So like, what's a, what's a typical day for you? Um, or like a typical trip, I guess, even if it's multiple days, then, then that too. But what's a typical trip? Like, uh, if someone wants to come up and, and take a trip out with you guys. It's, it's usually they fly in, um, you know, we'll get them unpacked, get them off the boat. Um, so typically on our, uh, like pickup drop off days, um, the flight is at 11. Um, so they'll come in at 11. We'll bring them back to the lodge. They'll get settled or whatever. Eat. Um, it's a full service lodge, which is pretty nice. So we don't have to handle any of that as guides. Um, you know, some places are, you know, most places in Alaska actually will have like food and stuff and, um, you know, in their standing cabin. So that's nice. And then, uh, they'll eat lunch. Um, basically we just, you know, kind of sit down and talk to them, set up a fishing regimen and, um, we go out and fish, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, we, we have, uh, 40 horse jet boats that we just run up the river and okay. we, uh, we have access to the lower 10 miles of the tributary, um, and then we actually do uh, overnight raft trips uh, for those that are a little more adventurous um, from the headwaters, which are in a place called Lake Chalatna. Um, and those are six days, typically 67 miles of float. So it's, you know, eight to 10 hours a day of pretty hardcore floating. It's pretty cool. but Oh, nice. And um, so it sounds like people aren't generally coming in for just like a day. They, they stay there with you guys at the, at the lodge. I would say it's probably 60, 40 people, um, that stay multiple days. Um, the average I would say is two to four days anywhere from there. Um, and then we'll have, you know, I probably, I probably had five people that were there for day fishing, um, that were, that would either fly in from Anchorage or they would take a day to fish if they didn't know what else to do while they Mm -hmm. were in Alaska. Um, you know, it's just not everybody isn't in Alaska to fish, which is right. Or their families aren't. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we, we get a lot of, we would get, you know, I actually, I probably this season I had three people, I think, um, you know, husbands where they were there um, and they brought their families along and the husband, they're like, they had like a day off from a cruise or something like that where they decided to fly out. So uh, there's a, there's a couple people like that. And which is nice for the proximity to Anchorage and relativity to, most places in Alaska because nowhere is close in Alaska. So. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> what do the place. what do the families usually do while they're there if uh, if their spouse is fishing? Um, a, a lot of them will actually come fish with us. Uh, oh, okay. But there's a, there's a we have a main lodge and um, there's plenty of stuff to do there. We actually have very limited Wi-Fi when the generator's <laughs> running, so so they can do that. But um, yeah, mostly they'll fish. I mean, we have a there's a pretty pretty good hiking trail most of the people that that'll come are, are into the outdoors um so they've got hiking um we can't we can you know we've taken them out for just for boat rides and sightseeing and that kind of stuff there's a lot of wildlife in the area so a lot of people do wildlife viewing and that kind of stuff where they'll just sit you know sit by the river and hang out so it's a nice place to be i'm sure yeah absolutely <laughs> i can't complain about it you know it's not not a bad place to be what what was it like the first time you got i assume that well i guess i shouldn't assume had you been to alaska before you went up to guide your first season i actually hadn't no um so when i got up there i was kind of just like uh i 
you know, didn't really know what to expect. Um, you know, being from the East coast, I'm used to in the winter, you know, not that it's not dark there in the winter because it is, but you know, I'm used to not very long days and, you know, um, this past summer, actually the weather was kind of insane, but, um, I don't know if you heard at all, or I know most people in the fishing industry did about the like extreme heat that they had, but, um, you know, it just the, the 20 hour days of sunlight are, you know, kind of, kind of wild to get used to at first. And then you realize, you know, okay, this is just how it is. And you get used to it. And then, um, the, I would probably say the biggest shock to me was the, like, uh, the wildlife, um, and the, just how kind of rich and green everything is. And I guess that's from the salmon, um, you know, they're, they're the base of the ecosystem and mm-hmm. pretty much every watershed in Alaska. So, right. Uh, um, do, how you said that, uh, you kind of just get used to the like long days. Does it, do you find that once you're up there and, and going through that for, you know, a couple of months, you just completely get used to it? Or is, is society a little bit different up there dealing with that compared to the lower 48 where, you know, people never experience something like that? Um, I would probably say it's, it's definitely a little bit different part of society up there. Um, you know, there's a few locals that are in that area and they are, you know, they're, they're used to it because that's what they live. But, you know, you get people that travel from all over the place to come to Alaska and, everybody seems a little bit amazed that the sun actually doesn't go down that often. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it, it can be kind of shocking for some people and other people are just, just, you know, are completely used to it already for, you know, whatever circumstance. So um, it's, it's kind of a mix of both, I would say. Are there any things that you feel like, well, I guess I wouldn't say taken for granted, but for example, are, do they still treat it as nighttime, you know, come like 8, 9 p.m.? Or is it like, well, the sun's out until, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, so day daytime goes until that time? Or do people still kind of yeah. turn things off? Um, you know, again, I would say that's a mix, too. It kind of depends on how hard the people are fishing. Um, you know, if somebody wants to get out there, you know, really get after it at 4.30, 5 in the morning, um, you know, absolutely, let's do it. Um, but most people, I would say we start around six o'clock, uh, seven o'clock and then go until dinner time. And then, uh, if people want to go out after dinner, you know, we'll take them out after dinner. Um, but our lodge has a policy of being back by 11 o'clock, um, every night until August. And then we actually have to be back at 10 cause the sun actually does start to set a little bit. Um, and the animals will get a little, pretty active once, <laughs> once that happens. So you don't want to be out walking around at that time. Um, but I would say most people treat it like a normal day, um, you know, and then that gives us a break that gives everybody at the lodge a break and that gives them a break, you know, so they're not, mm-hmm. they don't get burnt out. Sure. Um, do you have any fun wildlife stories? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> actually, yeah. So this, this summer there was a, a cow moose and uh, two calves that were living on lodge property. Um, when we got there and one of the first nights we were all there there's so there's 10 of us and we all on lodge property in cabins uh do a cabin so um there's no running water in cabins uh, we're you know we're in the middle of nowhere out there and uh <laughs> one of uh one of the guys i was working with this summer um he woke up in the middle of the night to use the outhouse uh and he came out of the outhouse and there was the cow moose 
just kind of walking down the path. And he just, he said, uh, he put his hands up, just turned around and walked right back into the hour, <laughs> 10 minutes. Um, cause he did not want to deal with that. Um, and then, you know, there's the typical, I've had bears pop out behind me, you know, five, 10, 15 feet on the bank while I'm in the water with, with clients. Um, you know, we, we carry bear spray and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, that, that gets a little wild. You could just kind of turn around, back away real slow and, <laughs> and make sure, you know, cause they're not there for you. They're right. there for the fish. Um, but <laughs> just back away real slow. We, there's actually not a ton of brown bears there. We have a lot of black bears. So. Oh, okay. Um, Is that what I picture? Yeah. Everybody thinks huge grizzlies when they hear Alaska, but, uh, Actually, back in 2013, uh, the valley was getting overpopulated with brown bears, so uh, uh, fishing game had a bounty on them, so they were kind of hunted down to where they're not super around the populated areas anymore. Um, but they're actually starting to bounce back a little bit with the moose population. Um, so I saw two this summer, um, but I saw countless black bears, I, you know, just a lot. Um, and then actually another good wildlife story this one wasn't really scary or sketchy or anything like that but uh we had the really good fortune of uh we were up river one day uh out on the boats and we see uh made a pair of bald eagles just kind of flying around um and all of a sudden they start going way up and then we see them lock talons and we got to see watch them do their mating ritual which was really really cool um so i don't know if you know how much you know or any you know other people know but what they do is um they lock talons and free fall from like hundreds of feet in the air um as like a trust exercise i think because uh from what i understand they're monogamous and made for life um so that was really cool to watch um but that you know they're they're everywhere out there beavers are everywhere out there <laughs> we've got we've got quite a few different things so yeah, I've heard of that that mating ritual, but I've I've never seen it, and I'm sure most people probably never get the chance to see that. So yeah, that's pretty cool. yeah, that was that I I had never seen anything like it before, and you know it was it was definitely cool to watch. I think the coolest thing I've ever seen an eagle do I've seen it happen two or three times is uh, an eagle uh, grabbing a fish that's too big for it and having to like swim it to shore. I'm sure that's got to happen like all the time up oh, in Alaska because yeah. I'm sure those fish are you know bigger than the average fish down here. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've seen eagles where they gorge themselves too much and can't take off because <laughs> um, they weigh themselves down too much by eating too much fish. I've seen eagles try to pick up thirty plus pound kings, try to fly just absolutely no way they're doing that so <laughs> you so think they they'd like get used to it <laughs> you'd think but you know they they're they're predators and they see something big that they know is going to feed them for a while and instinct takes over <laughs> just, i'm just gonna go for it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah they just kind of hey you know screw it we'll <laughs> we'll dive in you kind of touched on something that i was going to ask um you said that the brown bears are like, they're not there for you. They're there for the, for the fish. Is that kind of a theme across Alaska? Cause I feel like whenever I hear about bear attacks, I, I tend to hear about them in places like Montana. I don't hear about a lot of grizzly attacks from Alaska. And I'm not sure if that's just because I'm you know not as connected to Alaska or if it's just because that you can kind of cohabitate pretty easily just because, you know, I won't bother you. You won't bother me kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, Honestly, I'm not an expert on the situation by any means, but uh, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I mean, I've heard about him in Montana. I've been to Montana a few times and, um, you know, 
I've always heard of way more bear attacks happening there. I would have to guess that's probably what it is, is they just have so much more abundance of, of a food source. Mm. Um, and that's what they're focused on. Cause, um, especially in places like Bristol Bay where it's just, you know, the sockeye run is millions and millions of fish strong. Um, you know, they're just so, they're so focused on that, that, and that's their main source of prey and they don't see people all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know rarely if ever um at you know at this point which is you know i guess a good thing um that i would i would have to say they probably just they don't know what you are or they know you're not a threat to them at that point so they just kind of ignore you okay well cool i want to transition over into the kind of diy stuff if you're cool with that yeah absolutely um, so i've i've never been to alaska but i think it'd be really fun to go up one day and do some fishing. Um, but I do like the idea of either uh, doing maybe a couple days guided and then doing a do-it-yourself trip or just doing a do-it-yourself trip from the start. Um, and I think this is one of those subjects where I may not even know what I don't know. Um, so I'll, I'll pepper you with some questions about it, but also feel free to jump in and like let me know anything that you think you know someone might want to know if they're, if they're going to do DIY. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I guess the first part. Well, I don't even know what order to go in because there's not really a, a <laughs> clear order. I feel like, but um, if someone's planning to come up, how long? How long do you think that they should come to um, get the you know, quote unquote full experience of, of fishing up there? Um, that really all depends what somebody's goal is. Uh, if somebody's goal is to catch a lot of fish, I would honestly advise coming up. Um, not that you won't catch a lot of fish any time of year up there, but I would come up later in the summer um, and probably minimum, if you want to experience the most, I would say minimum five days. You know, a lot of people do a full week. Um, some people, you know, will take a week to fish and then a week to travel, um, you know, and see other stuff because there's a lot to see there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say probably minimum five days if you want to ex- get the full experience of fishing. And you said late summer? like august is that yeah i would say i would say the last week of july going into august um and then the first two weeks in august are usually pretty they're firing pretty good usually Um, that's when the chums come in that's when the coho uh, or silvers come in um you know the pinks are usually already there um and then the the trout are just gorging themselves on eggs and i know that's not everybody's cup of tea you know i was never never the guy to fish egg patterns or whatever until i went up there um and then you know the only way to catch a rainbow at some points is either fishing a flash fly or uh, pegging a bead um and you know that's that's what you got to do up there so um it's probably your best opportunity to to catch as many different types of fish as alaska has to offer um you know, or you come early summer in June when the Kings are coming and you target the big boys. <laughs> okay. So it's coming a little bit earlier. You can, you can target those larger fish, but if you come later in the summer, you're, you're kind of overlapping a, a bunch of different species and absolutely. Kind of, yeah. Okay, cool. I feel like that's, I, I feel like most people would probably opt for wanting to catch a bunch of different types. I, I'm, I mean, I'm just speaking yeah. from my own point of view, but like I'd rather I catch a bunch of different you, yeah. things. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, it's pretty cool that there's there's so many there's an abundance of so many fish species there. Um, I mean, I, I've 
seen one person do a salmon slam um, in a week. It wasn't in a day. It was in a week. Um, and that's tough to do because by the time every species is in the system, uh, the kings are really starting to kind of zombify up. But um, a couple will still eat. But um, if you want to catch the most species, by far later in the summer is the best best thing to do. Is that what you find that most people want when they come up? Or do they have, is there a, an overwhelming uh, like species that everyone wants to catch or uh, an unusual species that, you know, you do get some interest in? Yeah. So um, I would say there's, there's usually two sets of people. There's the people that came to Alaska to fish and they're hardcore fishermen. And they're, I find a lot of those people are for their first silver season or king season, king season, because they're gigantic fish um, and they fight really hard and they eat swung flies um, that's my favorite way to get fish for them is with a two-hander and swing a fly um, and until you've had a you know a king salmon eat a swung fly that's you know 15 hours from the salt um, it, it's kind of tough to describe them um, and I think a lot of more the more hardcore fishermen will go for that and then you know people that aren't quite as into it and might want to be in a you know might want to experience other things in alaska um will probably go for the you know the other stuff okay if if uh someone's coming up and is bringing their own gear like let's assume that they're not gonna you know go with a, an outfit or, or rent or anything like that right. um is it fairly easy to bring your own setup up there uh, in terms of everything you'll need? Uh, or do you need like a different different rods for different species? Like if, if someone's coming up and wants to do like salmon, trout, and let's say, I don't know, like grayling or pike or, or something else that's up there, is do can people get away with just a single setup for all those things and just switch out their flies? Or are you looking at different ro- rod weights and different lines and things like that? Um, I would say if you're looking to target salmon and, and, you know, maybe pike or something like that, you could probably get away with a seven weight setup for everything. Um, You know, you might even want to go up to an eight weight um, at at that, at that point, Um, unless it's king salmon. And then I wouldn't say anything less than an eight weight um, at minimum. Um, But trout, I probably wouldn't go heavier than a five weight. I fish a three weight for them. Um, really? Out there. Uh, not a lot of people go that light, um, but our drainage doesn't have those big lake run oh, okay. rainbows that everybody, you know, conflagrates with Alaska. Um, they're more, you know, they're still really nice, but they're more in the 18 to 20 inch range. Okay. Um, you know, but they'll st- they're still eating streamers and all that kind of stuff. So I usually go for a, a three weight or a four weight, especially early season when you're kind of kind of drift uh, smelt patterns, right, right near the surface. And that's that's my favorite way to fish for them. But uh, if I had to if I had to go with one rod for Alaska, I'd probably say a, a seven or an eight weight. Okay, so it sounds like you know in an ideal world you might have a seven or an eight weight for some of the larger fish, and then maybe a four or five weight for the trout. But if yeah. you had to just pick one, you know, got to go to the largest option. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I would I would probably say seven weight is a pretty safe bet for just about anything you'll catch, unless you get a freakishly large fish, which mm-hmm. can that happen. Could, right, that could happen if you've got a five weight on. You could get a trout right. that's too big for that. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know some of the guys in Bristol Bay 
fish for the trout with seven weights and they're needed (laughs) (laughs) well that's not a bad problem to have (laughs) no it is not no it is not uh what other species are right around where you are or or in all of alaska like if, if someone's coming to alaska what what all species do you think they could check off their list Oh man, there's there's a lot. Um, so you've got all five species of, of Pacific salmon. Um, if you go down to the Aleutians, um, which is really actually hard to get to because they're obviously they're islands, they're not connected mm-hmm. to Alaska by the Alaskan Highway. Um, you can catch sea run cuts. You can catch steelhead. You can catch these weird fish. They're called she fish. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No. Um, a lot of people they're in the, the farther north parts of alaska um people call them freshwater tarpon um, they're basically just overgrown minnows that are anadromous um oh. and they'll go back and forth from the ocean to the rivers and people catch these huge huge she fish like double digit pounds often um and nobody has ever heard of them they're really weird looking um they're just like giant minnows but uh, that that's a that's a fish that not a lot of people know about that I think is pretty underrated as far as Alaska goes. Um, and then you've got uh, the Arctic char, the dollies, the rainbows. Um, you know, there's the pike, uh, the grayling. There's there's a whole lot to target out here. Do you have walleyes that far north? Um, you know what? I don't think so. Um, I personally don't know if they're anywhere in Alaska and the drainage I guide on, we do not have walleye. Um, the pike we have were introduced illegally in, Oh, okay. Uh, God, probably 50 or 60 years ago. Um, and they were super successful. Um, so we actually are required by fishing game to kill them if we catch them uh, because they're an invasive species. So, um, I don't believe there's walleye, but I could I could be wrong. That's just one of those fish that I think of as being, you know, I, in the lower 48, I think of it as being a northern fish, like Minnesota, Wisconsin, that kind of area. But it seems like there there's like a band that goes across the U.S. or the, I guess, North America, where uh, they're not farther south or farther north than that. But, I mean, maybe they are and they're just not where you are. But I'm just wondering because I, I associate yeah. them with being up north, but I never associate them with Alaska. And I just wasn't sure if maybe you guys had them up there. I'm sure they're in here. Um, I know lakes in the Yukon have them in northern Manitoba. Like uh, there's a Great Slave Lake has huge walleye um, that I know people troll for and stuff like that. And that's about the same latitude. So uh, maybe we do. I, I I just haven't heard of them. I'll be honest, I've never fished for walleye. <laughs> so I, I'm not super into into it. So I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so if someone's coming up, uh, is there a specific area? Like I know Bristol Bay is like obviously the like the place that everyone's heard of. Um, would you say that if someone's coming up, it's pretty imperative to come to a certain region in Alaska? Or is, is fly fishing kind of, you know, you can go anywhere you want and, and find something to catch? I think you can fly fish pretty much anywhere you want in Alaska and you'll find something. Um, You know, there's always going to be spots that are more conducive to gear fishing. There's always going to be spots that are more conducive to fly fishing. Um, I think as a general statement, anywhere in Alaska, you'll be able to go, you'll be able to catch something with a fly rod though. Um, I mean, Bristol Bay is obviously the number one place, but there's a lot of other places um, that are 
pretty, I don't want to say underrated in Alaska, but um, not nearly as well known um, just because of, you know, the fame that Bristol Bay has for being the largest wild salmon run on the planet and, you know, all the 30 inch plus chrome rainbows that come out of come out of those tributaries but um you know i like i was i mentioned earlier the aleutian islands uh, they have the strongest coho run in alaska um, and they're huge huge fish uh, you can fish the yukon river uh, for chums which are actually they're the larger they're the longest uh, migrating salmon species on the planet um the chum run and on the Yukon river, um, like I mentioned those she fish, um, in Northern Alaska, you've got good news Bay out in the, the more Western part of the state. You've got Yakutat down in the Southeast and, uh, the Tongass rainforest. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different opportunities for people in Alaska. So, so you're not, you're not, um, kind of pigeonholed into, into an area with, with everybody else. Like there's, there's plenty of places to go that aren't, you know, what you're going to find if you just do a quick Google search for where to go fish in Alaska, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, there. if you could drive everywhere in Alaska, which you can't, unfortunately, you could spend the rest of your life there fishing for, you know, whatever you wanted. That's a perfect segue into my next, I guess, set of questions, which is probably the thing that intimidates me the most about, you know, when I think of trying to go to Alaska to do a DIY trip. And that is, um, I, when I when I picture going up there on like a guided trip, I picture float planes and jet boats and things like that. Um, if someone comes up and just lands in Alaska, how do you get from, let's just say like Anchorage, like a, a major airport, how do you get from there to you know, the spot that you're about to take a cast? I assume you might take a bush plane like to a smaller, a smaller town, um, and then can you generally find some places to just go up and start fishing or do you need to rent a car? Like what, what, what's the process of getting from a major hub to a place that you can catch fish? Yeah. So the bush flights are really the main method of travel of getting places. I should say, um, there's not a whole lot of road systems in Alaska. There's the, the major Alaska highway, um, you know, that comes up from Washington through Canada. Um, and go through there and that's the main road system in alaska so you can take that from anchorage and there is a road system um you know from anchorage down to talkeetna in those areas um and you can get to fishing by renting a car there and you know driving um and people do it and people do it all the time people drive all the way up north to fairbanks and go grayling fishing and salmon fishing up in the arctic um but by and large, it's going to be float planes or or bush planes with tundra tires, um, or you know, you stay in Anchorage and you fish. You fish in Anchorage. Mm. So it sounds like if you if you're stuck in a car, um, you basically either have to go somewhere that you can hop out of the car and fish, or that you could do like a short hike to. Uh, which in Alaska, yes. I'm sure there's probably not a lot of places that are a short hike because it sounds like the, the roads don't go that many places. Yeah, from, from my understanding of it, I haven't been super far north, um, but the highway network is not very strong there. Um, you know, 
there's mainly there's the highway and then obviously it goes off into towns and stuff like that um and i know there are places where the actual highway goes next to rivers where you can like literally pull off on a bridge like you would somewhere in the lower 48 on a popular uh pool or something like that you know colorado or montana or wherever um but by and large they're you're either hiking or um bushwhacking or you know floating you know i'll large majority of people float in Alaska they'll do remote floats or they'll do day floats or that kind of stuff now is that DIY floats or like how would how would one access uh, a raft or a boat I would say most of it's guided uh, okay. without fitters um, I'm sure you can do DIY floats if you have the experience um, obviously I would never do that alone um, I would sure. always have you know I would always be prepared for um, you know, bears and that kind of stuff. Um, and then whatever weather Alaska can throw at you, um, because it gets crazy. <laughs> the weather. Yeah. Um, the weather, be prepared for rain, uh, always be prepared for wind, be prepared for thunderstorms, be prepared for forest fires, be prepared for heat, snow, whatever, whatever you can think of happens <laughs> during the summer in Alaska sounds like the mountains here you know, we've got yeah. snow and snow in june and july and then you know you might get a 60 degree day in the middle of winter <laughs> yeah yeah i mean this past summer was a rough one um it was like 90 degrees where we were for like two weeks straight which is like i think the hottest stretch in alaskan history um and there was you know quite a few major forest fires i think there was three or four that were had a huge impact on anchorage with the smoke um, and I'm sure living in Colorado, you're <laughs> fairly used to that phenomenon. Yep. Unfortunately. So, yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, but yeah, the weather, the weather's kind of crazy out here. It's another consider something else to consider. Um, but as far as roads go, um, there's not a whole lot of infrastructure, um, to get places. So. So if someone comes up and decides they want to, uh, take a, take a plane, be it a bush plane or a float plane. Um, couple questions on that. One is, uh, how do you how do you book that? Is that something that comes through an outfitter, or can you just hop a hop a ride on a bush plane somewhere as a DIY fisherman? So there's a little place next to the Anchorage Airport called Lake Hood. Um, it's one of the largest uh, float plane airports, I believe, in the country um where there's there's charter companies there's companies that do tours there's private pilots there's just dudes that really like to fly planes there's women that really love to fly planes that'll take people for a fee there's air taxis all that kind of stuff um you know you can either find with a quick google search or if you do want to do a day or two with a guide um typically if it's through a lodge they'll have either a charter or their own plane okay so you can you can basically just buy a ticket for yeah. a, a bush yeah. plane, and is that something you buy in advance, or do you just show up there and there's just you know pilots waiting around with their planes to take whoever comes up? Uh, you would buy that in advance a lot. It's it's basically like Uber for fishermen, you know, to get places because there's people that do um, they'll do day flights where it's basically an air, it's an air taxi. Um, they'll pick you up in the morning. You you know they drop you off and then you set a meet point and you're back at that meet point and at the end of the day and they'll pick you up 
So where I assume, well, I guess float planes have to land on water, obviously. I assume bush planes have to land somewhere that there's, I mean, does there have to be an established landing strip? How do you choose where where you want to go? Like if you come up and, and request them to take you somewhere, do they have a list of spots that you can choose from? Or are you like, hey, I found this spot on the map. Like, can you get me there? How, how do you, uh, how do you determine where you go? So that would uh, probably be pilots, um, whatever you're thinking. I'm sure a lot of them have established places they like to land and take off and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, I've seen, um, I don't know if you're familiar with float plans at all, but uh, one of the more popular models is a De Havilland Beaver um, in Alaska because it's what it, they're, they're just really good for what they're designed for, which is um, taking off and landing in really short distances with large amounts of freight. Um, and then, so on a float plane, obviously you need a body of water. Um, but, uh, a lot of them will have tundra tires, which are those big bouncy rubber tires you see on those small planes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen planes land in 50 yards, a hundred yards on little gravel bars or beaches or stuff like that. I mean, I've, I've seen a bush plane land while I was guiding somebody, um, in, a hundred feet on a little stretch of gravel bar. Um, they're, wow. they're pretty versatile. If they're, if you're a good enough pilot, um, you know, they can get them into some pretty crazy places. You know, I was stunned. I couldn't believe the plane landed there, but, but, uh, he, he, he was there, didn't even fish. He just pulled out a beach chair, sat there for a few hours and took off. <laughs> it's like the, like our cars down here. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. So do you, uh, is if you get a, uh, a ride somewhere can you i mean do they stipulate how long you can be there can you be there for just a day or can you say hey show up in a week i'll be here and they can just do that without you know verifying that you're capable of being out there for a week <laughs> i probably wouldn't do that <laughs> um maybe i've i've never heard of that happening okay um, i would advise strongly against that okay fair <laughs> um, enough just because there's so many things that can go wrong in a week and if you're not at the coordinates you're supposed to be and the pilot's there uh he can't wait for you because <laughs> okay yeah, there's there's certain restrictions for flying and that kind of stuff um but i i mean i i just know uh, i i have experience either talking with people or um doing it if you know it's like i think um, I, I paid 300 bucks, uh, in Anchorage for a guy to fly me out to the Russian or, uh, out into the middle of nowhere and drops you off, picks you back up at the end of the day before the sun really starts to set. Okay. So is that a tip? That was going to be my next question is, is that like a typical price? How much should you expect to, for a bush plane ride to cost? Yeah, I, yeah. It varies. Um, I would say anywhere, probably a couple hundred. So anywhere from you know two hundred to three or four hundred, and that all depends how far you want to go or um, where where you plan on going, and and that I'm sure varies pilot to pilot um, as well, just based on their experience levels or you know if they fly with an outfit, if they fly with a charter company, if they if they're private, you know all that kind of stuff. Okay. So it sounds like, uh, you know, if you've got the money, you could just run to Bush Plane every day and go somewhere different. But there's, yeah, I'm sure there's probably yeah. a lot of people who come and do a couple, you know, flights places and then maybe just fish mm-hmm. closer to home just to save a little bit of cash. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of oh, that's what a lot of people do. If you're not staying at a lodge, um, 
I know uh, the, the local fly shop here, um, one of the owners who I've become friends with over the years, talking to him, he has specifically done that in Alaska before, um, is he flies to a different river every day for a week um, and just fishes there. And I know that's what a lot of the lodges do in Bristol Bay, is they have their own float plane and they'll fly to the Knack one day, and then they'll fly to the Quijack, they'll fly to you know, a number of different rivers in the system just to, just to vary, um, you know, where you're fishing. Is it pretty crowded? I, like, I hear about, you know, a lot of people coming to Alaska to fish, but it's such a huge area that I have no real concept of, you know, when you're out on the river, how many people a day are you coming across? That is a huge depending on where you are. Okay. Uh, let's, let's say you, you haven't like booked a, a flo- I, I assume if I'm paying someone to fly me out in the middle of nowhere, I would sure hope I'm not running into a bunch of people, but yeah, let's say you're, you're closer to that, town. <laughs> yeah. So if you're doing that, um, chances are you're not going to see another person. Okay. Um, and then as a disclaimer, don't go out alone. <laughs> that idea. <laughs> um, but I would say, um, you know, don't go to the popular places, the Kenai River during the Sockeye Run is shoulder to shoulder. Okay. Um, you know, and, and everybody knows the Kenai because there's huge rainbows. The Sockeyes run in there. You can walk across them practically, but uh, it's a lot of people shoulder to shoulder, uh, flossing or snagging, whatever you want to call it, um, flossing their limit of Sockeyes and taking them home. Um, you know, you could call it combat fishing. Um, but then again, there's Bristol Bay, which is super popular, but a lot of it um, is incredibly hard to access. So it's only accessed by the lodges. Um, okay. So, you know, they have rod limits at the, at the lodges. You know, they can only have so many people there at a time. So you're only going to see those people or, you know, you're going to go to all different rivers in a day. Um, or for, for our lodge, for instance, we're the only ones that have access to up rivers. We're the only ones that stash our boats up river. Um, so we're the only ones that have access to it. So you won't see anybody else except for other guides from the lodge I work at or, you know, um, other guests at the lodge I work at. It sounds kind of like a nice mix of if you want to go up and, and catch your limit of, you know, sockeyes, you can go combat fish. If you want to um, kind of have a little bit more of an exclusive experience and um, but still be a little closer to home, just go through an outfitter. And if you want to see absolutely nobody, then just hire someone to fly you out, um, to a river in the middle of nowhere, uh, which is, which is kind of nice because I feel like somewhere, you know, for example, I'm in Colorado, you can't really escape people. You know, even if you choose to, you know, hike a really far distance, you might still encounter an outfitter who hiked someone up there or just someone else who wanted to get after it but it's not it's not so separated like that because everyone can pretty much access everywhere yeah absolutely um it's like we've you know we've made the point um that there's alaska's big it's a huge huge place um and there's a lot of things to do there i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of water there's a lot of water in alaska and every almost you know, every, every body of water that I could think of has fish in it, you know, is there's just, there's so, so much to cover out there that if you wanted to, you could never see another person, mm-hmm. you know, no matter how often you fished it, you would never see another person there. And I'm sure it's not too hard. Like if you, if you do a Google search for, for where to fish in your area and just don't go to the first couple places they list, I'm sure it's not hard to find places that even if you, you know, 
aren't completely alone that you're not shoulder to shoulder with people you know yeah it only takes a little bit of effort to find out where where the crowds are going to be and then just don't go there yeah that that's exactly (laughs) i mean you can say that really about anywhere right i think it's especially it especially rings true for alaska just because of um the the population density is in like three places <laughs> and then you know it's it's hard just hard to get other places so if you want to find uh somewhere where you're alone you can if you don't want to do that and you you know you want to catch your limit of sockeyes real quick um because it's easy to do there and you want to be around other people go to the kenai turns you know it, there's so there's so much opportunity there for fishing that um it's hard to narrow down um things to do without you know having specific people's interests in front of you you know Mm -hmm. so if someone wants to come like let's assume that um someone is coming to take take some salmon home with them do you know what the process is of getting getting let's say your limit of fish and then actually getting it back to the lower 48 yeah so um I can only speak specifically for what the process is for the lodge I work through. Sure. We'll, um, we'll use that as an example then. Yeah. So for, as an example, so what we do, you know, you say so you catch your limit of fish this year, you take home, um, you're, you know, you limit of fish for three days. We take them home for you, uh, or we take them back to the lodge for you, excuse me. Uh, we fillet them up, vacuum seal them, freeze them. Um, and then there's a couple options. We, uh, the lodge that we, uh, the lodge that I go through, we have a deal with, um, a meat packing company in Anchorage that will you know professionally process the meat for you you can have like there's a bunch of options like you can smoke it you can cure it you know do a bunch of stuff with it um and then they'll ship it for you um there the charter company we work with has these fish coolers that you can rent from them to fly home with your fish as luggage and you can check it um and then there's always the option to ship it okay so it, it sounds like it'll be a little bit more work if someone's not going through an outfitter and have, you know, having the benefit of somebody to freeze their fish, vacuum seal it, stuff like that. But yeah, if you, if you know, if you're able to just find a, a service that can, can freeze it and vacuum seal it for you, then you can mm-hmm. just either ship it or fly it home as any other piece of, of luggage. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and just as a, as a disclaimer, the, uh, the place that we work through in Anchorage, the professional meat bagging place does have a weight limit um okay so you might run into that issue so say you only keep one or two fish that you wanted to take home or um you know something like that the the weight limit there is 10 pounds of fish which is if you fillet is probably three fish um you know if you're catching big bigger fish um i know one person this year that i guided took home 44 pounds um so it's and that he was only there for five days so it's it's not hard to hit that limit mm-hmm um, you know, and that, again, that's just speaking from what I know about, um, based on what, uh, the lodge I work for does as far as shipping stuff. Is, is that service the one that will, sh- is that a shipping service? Like, I assume that you could bring, you know, if, if you get a certain luggage allowance on an airplane, you could fill as much of that with fish as you want. Oh, is yeah, that, is that the yeah. packaging that they have the limit on or the actual like shipping, they'll ship it 10 pounds for you? Um, they'll, they'll ship a, they'll, so they process it for you and they ship it to your home address. Um, it's a 10 pound minimum, I should say. Oh, minimum. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 10, it's a 10 pound minimum because they, it's a meat processing plant basically, um, for fish and you know, it's quite frankly not worth it to them 
to them to process one or two fish. For no, that makes so much more sense. Because I was like, that yeah. just seems really low. Like, I, I feel like people got to be bringing back, <laughs> you know, way more than 10 pounds when they go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I was saying, I mean, I had a guy bring home 44 pounds. A lot of people bring home 20 plus pounds of fish. Okay. Uh, for a multi-day stay. Which are the... Uh, the preferred salmon to bring home. I, I hear bad things about things like chum salmon. I don't know if that's a, you know, a myth or if, if there's actually some that are way better than others. There are. So, um, a lot of people tell you that King or Chinook is, is their favorite. Um, personally, I'm a big sockeye fan. Okay. Um, they're the more, they have a more oily, delicate flesh than a King. Um, and there it's those are the ones those are the, the big red fish for people that that don't know what a sockeye is the ones that the famous salmon that are really bright red when they get all colored up for their spawn um and then followed closely in second place for me would be coho or silver salmon okay uh, they're they have really bright orange flesh and it's really tasty if you eat it fresh um chum is good if you catch it really really fresh like really chrome or already in the ocean um if there is any color to a chum at all i would personally not keep it um their flesh just gets really mushy it's not that it tastes bad it's just a very off-putting texture okay uh, yeah I've, I've heard that they're not great but i've never heard what makes them not great yeah it's just they they change really fast when they come into fresh water okay um and you know within just a couple days they're they go from chrome to you know that that classic green goblin looking chum with the purple mm -hmm. bars on it <laughs> those those are not something you want to take home uh to, to the family to feed them um <laughs> they don't look particularly but, appetizing i mean no <laughs> no they don't um but they i have also heard that they're really good smoked um so you know it's it's all taste and preference uh and personally i don't like pink salmon <laughs> okay which uh they're just they taste kind of like nothing um so good good or bad you know, depending on whether you actually like salmon right, <laughs> right yeah that's basically what it comes down to and i know uh, and again the fresher the fish is the better it's going to taste in all five species of course yeah when i say you know when i say fresher the closer they are to the ocean or the less time they spent in fresh water, the better they're going to taste. Right. I feel like that, that seems to be the case kind of across the board with fish. Like, I mean, they're coming up to die. They, they can't be getting yeah, exactly. you know, better. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a very good point. <laughs> so what, uh, what is the licensing system like in Alaska? Um, either, well, both uh, the cost of a license and um, like what options there are in terms of, uh, time periods to, to buy a license. So you can get, I, I believe they sell, they sell daily licenses. They sell lifetime licenses. They sell, you know, annual ones. Um, annual, I believe for out of state is a hundred dollars. Oh, that's um, not bad at all. No, it's not. It's not bad. Um, but like a King salmon stamp is $150. Oh, okay. So yeah. Tell me about the stamp yeah. system then. So the stamp system, um, is for Kings in my drainage. Um, because this year actually the fishery was closed down we weren't allowed to target them um, neither was commercial fishing um, neither was subsistence fishing so for really? the first time in that drainage 
everybody was shut down, not just either, you know, sport fishing or subsistence or commercial. Um, they're having a, a fairly rough time. Uh, the Kings, um, they're starting to bounce back a little bit. We saw a lot of fish this year spawning, which was really great to see. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's why you have, you have to have a King stamp there and they're $150. Um, I am not a hundred percent positive if that's Alaska wide or just the drainage I'm on. Um, I know a lot of places in Alaska to fish for steelhead, you need a steelhead stamp. Um, and then as far as I know, there's no other stamps. Um, and the other funny thing about Alaska, uh, system or Alaska licenses, um, to get your guide license in Alaska, it's just an add-on to your fishing license. That's completely free. Really? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of weird. So, um, to be uh, you know licensed by Alaska Fishing Game, you buy your fishing license, buy your you know your king salmon stamp or whatever, um, and then it's just an add-on like on their website. Um, that's you know it's a, it just says sport fishing guide, and they give you Bye. an ID <laughs> number or whatever. Um, but if you get stopped by coast guard or or fishing game or something like that you need to have your six-pack coast guard license as well okay so it's yeah. that that's something separate than, than yeah. through through alaska okay yeah um so it, it sounds like uh well i guess you you weren't positive if the stamp is just for your drainage or statewide but it sounds like if someone's going to go it's probably beneficial to look into getting your license like where you're going to fish or at least knowing yes. where you're going to fish. Yes. They do, they do change regulations based on drainage. Okay. Um, so know the regulations where you want to fish. Um, some drainages had closed king season. Some did not. Some had silver season closed halfway through the season because the water levels were so low um, because of the heat uh, this, you know, this, this past summer. So just always pay attention to regulations. And I think that's probably a good rule, no matter where you're going to fish. Um, but, in Alaska, pay attention to regulations. They update them and change them a lot. Okay. Do you know why the uh, the kings were particularly affected versus the other four species? Um, they're just a very cyclical fish, um, and they just they're the most sought after. Um, you know, the commercial fisheries. It's just not sustainable um, to have commercial fisheries to have sport fisheries and. Um, sustenance fisheries all targeting the same run of 20,000 fish. Um, I, we didn't hit escapement for three years in a row. Um, so they shut it down in January uh, this year before the season. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, they're very cyclical, um, but they're, you know, they're coming back up. Um, I've been told stories of before I was there in 2011, 2012, um, you know, that those are the best King years they had ever had. Um, so we'll see, um, we'll, we'll see as time passes, what actually, what actually happens. But, uh, that's, that's what I know about it. Um, you know, I'm no, I'm no biologist, so can't, can't tell you exactly what's going on, but from what I see, it's just, uh, loss of habitat, um, uh, you know, changing in, in the river conditions and, and over, straight up overfishing, Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that they, well, I'm not surprised because I don't know, you know, the specific situation that's going on right now, but I'm shocked that even subsistence fishing is taken down. I, I picture that as being the one thing that's usually yeah. still open places, you know? Yeah, that was, that was very surprising when I heard that, um, you know, even, even commercial fisheries, 
Um, and there's, there's a whole lot of politics that go into, no, I'm sure. into, into that, um, uh, which I, I won't get into. <laughs> um, but I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that even cause they have lobbies and all that kind of stuff that where the commercial fisheries, um, you know, have fairly, you know, large amounts of influence, um, when it comes to that kind of stuff. And then ADF and G said, no. <laughs> you know we're we're keeping it closed and mm-hmm. um yeah so uh, it was just because we hadn't hit escapement in three seasons um where they were just like all right it's nobody nobody takes them um and i think it's because there's not uh like an active native alaskan tribe in the valley okay um, that you know will actively do sustenance fishing so take that with a grain of salt but they did close they closed all three um so sounds like if you're coming up to fish for king specifically it's probably worth checking before you come up to make sure that not only it's open but also that it's a good year for it because it sounds like it's it's you know they could just be a bad year even if it's open yeah absolutely uh and that and it that's very specific to drainage as well okay um I know a lot of drainages had really good king years this year. Um, and I actually can tell you that we had a good one. We just weren't allowed to target them, which maybe maybe that's why it was a good year. Yeah, it's probably um, good. <laughs> Let them right, actually yeah. bounce back. Exactly. So, I, I mean, I can tell you that I saw thousands of fish just floating. Um, you know, they're, they're fire hydrant red when they're sitting on their reds. Um, and you float right over them and you can see these three and four foot long gigantic fish just sitting there and just, there are thousands and thousands of them just stacked up so um that was very good to see and you know based off what we saw we think we did actually hit a skateman this year so we're, we're we're looking forward to see what what they actually do personally i wouldn't hate it if they kept it closed for half the season or only opened it to catch and release um just to make sure everything's all right um but you know they're gonna do what they're gonna do, and we'll see what happens. But uh, definitely check whether the king season is open or closed. Um, if you're coming to Alaska, it, I would say that for all salmon species, um, just because, like I said, the fishing game changes the regulations a lot. Mm-hmm. When you first said that you saw thousands floating, I, I thought you meant it was a bad thing. Like you saw them floating, like dead. Oh, and I was like, oh, oh that's no, so no. sad. <laughs> I was, I was, I was floating in a raft. No, but you, you, you do see a lot of dead fish in Alaska. That's another thing to be prepared for, the smell. Oh, no, okay. Nobody, nobody ever thinks about the smell when there's just thousands of fish carcasses piled up on, on the riverbanks. Um, to be clear, that's like ones that have died that are supposed to die, not like yes, they've yes. all just been killed off by something. Right, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, it's it's the natural process of things, and, and they have one of the more unique life cycles of, of any pl- animal on the planet that I can think of. Mm. Um, and it's it's kind of awe-inspiring to, to watch an entire run of fish, um, you know, just die. <laughs> and, and, and you can see you can see the whole cycle year after year um and you can see the young fish coming back you see the smolt run and um it's pretty awe-inspiring uh, as far as that kind of stuff goes but it also does smell very terrible 
yeah, it's probably like a you know, on one hand, you're you're happy to see you know so many fish coming back up and knowing that those those carcasses are all going to go you know back into the cycle and everything. But at the same time, you're looking at it and it probably doesn't look that pretty at the time. Oh no, no, they're all white and patchy and zombified, and just you know, they're rotting fish. Is right. what they're and and a lot of them uh, will still be swimming while they're basically dead. Um, which is kind of wild to see. Um, you know, there's a reason they refer to them as zombies because they act like it. They, they, the instinct to get upstream is so strong that they will literally go there until they're dead. They won't stop trying to swim upstream until they're dead. Um, hmm. So it's 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 a pretty wild phenomenon to see, if if nothing else. Yeah, I'm sure that you know this kind of transitions into the the last thing I wanted to ask about, but. You know, I'm sure that even non-anglers could go out there and appreciate just seeing something, you know, so crazy that they've never gotten to experience before. You know, I, I yeah. feel like you can't see that elsewhere. No, there's there's not a lot of places on the planet left where that's that's an available thing. Um, I know in the in the lower 48, you've got the Pacific Northwest and some spots in California, and there's always the Great Lakes mm-hmm. um, for salmon. Um, but, I'm sure it's I just mean, not on the same scale, though. It's, it's just... not. It's 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 not. I can tell you from experience from fishing the Great Lakes and the Pacific Northwest, um, it's not the same scale. It used to be in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know. But we won't we won't get into that. But it's things in Alaska are still going really, really, really strong for these fish. Mm-hmm. Um, you That's know, good. You know, unfortunately, there's a few projects here and there that could have an effect on that, Bristol Bay and other places. But, I mean, I think the sockeye return this year in Bristol Bay was 53 or 4 million fish. Even more of a reason to protect it. Exactly, exactly, which is just that number of fish returning to one system is mind-blowing. And then, actually, in the Cook Inlet, where Anchorage is this year, um, I don't know how true this is, but this is what I was told, um, is that when we actually had the strongest pink salmon run we've had in a long time, is that when they made their push, um, they increased the tide by two feet. Wow. That's how many fish there were. So it's it's pretty insane. I think any fisherman would be happy to look out and see a two-foot wave of any fish <laughs> coming toward them. Yeah. I don't care if it's goldfish. <laughs> no. I mean, yeah that would be uh that would be quite the experience to see i did not see it that's just what i was told um by a biologist so (laughs) i don't again i don't know how true that is but well uh, we can we can dream exactly (laughs) but as far as non-fishing goes if you like the outdoors at all alaska is a must-see in my opinion yes that's what i was gonna ask um just to kind of finish things out is uh what other things during that time of year are are worth doing in Alaska? Because I, you know, I when I think of Alaska, I think of certain activities that you can't, or certain experiences even that you can't get down here, um, like Northern Lights and and dog sledding and stuff like that. And obviously, dog sledding is you know winter activity. But what what right. else can you do up there in the summertime when you're not oh, fishing? Man. Uh, f- hiking, biking, you know, anything you can do in the lower forty eight, you can do in Alaska in the summer. It's a lot of people, you know, it's crazy how, how often I'm still asked, oh, aren't you cold up there? Or, you know, isn't there snow on the ground? Like, no, 
there's it's summer <laughs> it's 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 not in a perpetual it's not the north pole <laughs> yeah it's, there's there's a lot to do up there i mean there's people run glacier tours um sightseeing animal brooks falls and katmai national park if you want to go wash bears um swimming surfing uh down in yakutat i know there's a huge like weirdly cult surf following for that particular swell um just really anything you can think of that involves using your two feet to get outside you can do in alaska so it sounds like kind of an ideal place to you know maybe you can't get time away from the family to come up for a fishing trip but you could just bring them up and yeah you know everyone absolutely. can do something right and you know you mentioned northern lights and stuff like that um, best time to see those is end of the summer. Um, oh, perfect. It, it's tough. You need a clear night, um, and then they're really not – they don't really go strong until September-ish. Oh, okay. Um, and even then, they're typically farther north. Um, but you can still see them, and that is a wild sight. Let me tell you that I saw them once this summer, really late, like August 24th, I think I saw them. Um, and it was real quick, just a couple green flashes, but it's something you never forget. Um, and you, that's, I think, really the take, my takeaway from Alaska is uh, like, like every day I saw something that I will never forget for the rest of my life. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I love that place and I'll go back there until I physically cannot. <laughs> I, I feel like this conversation made alaska feel makes alaska feel a lot less daunting like i think the biggest the biggest hurdle and i I think i mentioned it before but just not knowing how to get somewhere just because i I think a lot of people come up and do get a guided trip and not to take away from from booking a guided trip if that's what you're looking for but i know there's probably a lot of people who want to come up and just do it diy like they do any other trip um and it sounds like it's not actually that difficult to pull off um for the for the cost of a a plane flight up there um maybe one to several bush plane flights out to places and the cost of a license and then just shipping your fish back it sounds like that's essentially all you have to pay for yeah it's very it's very doable for diy and a lot of people don't think that and in the summer alaska has more national park land than any other state you know so i mean you can go to katmai you can go to kodiak you can go to the Tongass National Rainforest. Um, you can go to the Arctic, fish for grayling. I mean, you can go to gates of the Arctic National Park where there's one road in and, and fish for grayling. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty insane how much DIY there actually is out there um, when, you know, all you see all over Instagram is, is you know, people in front of float planes with their guides on jet, you know, on jet boats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially for, I mean, it, it's obviously, you know, part of the U.S., but it feels, I think, a lot more exotic to people than just thinking of it like another state. It absolutely does. You kind of get the benefit of, you know, an exotic trip with the, you know, I don't want to say the same cost as fishing in the lower 48 because odds are you don't need to, you know, hire a bush plane to get anywhere <laughs> down here. But, right. But you, if you hire a guide down here, I mean, a guide is going to be more expensive than the 300 bucks it takes to hire someone to fly you out, and you, now you have the whole river to yourself, so... Right. It doesn't sound like if, if you, you know, you can get the same or better experience for around the same cost. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it, it's 
fairly cost effective if you're able to afford you know getting there and flights aren't super cheap to alaska um you know I, from i think one way they're like anywhere from 300 to five or 600 but that's depending on the time of year and stuff you buy them but i mean like still for, for what you're getting for a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars for you know two or three days for diy and that's if you choose to go in the bush plans or whatever mm. yeah you can you can fish a lot of water sweet well uh we can get things wrapped up but do you want to uh just quickly share where people can either find you or the outfitter you work for on the web or social media yeah so i mean my instagram is just at jake roy 27 um you know just i just post pictures of fish mostly and flies <laughs> that i tie but um and then the outfit i work for is wilderness place lodge uh we are uh, about an hour outside of anchorage the website is wildernessplacelodge.com um and you know check us out i'll, I'll be there this summer and feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Um, feel free to book, you know, through the lodge and I'll be there. We'll put you on some fish. Awesome. Well, I hope, uh, hope people will feel a little less intimidated by, you know, planning a trip to Alaska. And, uh, if, if they don't want to do it DIY, then, then definitely, uh, reach out and, and book a trip. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hopefully people feel less intimidated by Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an intimidating place, but in a good way. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jake. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on to, to share. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, and that'll do it. As always, if you liked what you heard, go ahead and go over to the Wild Initiative podcast. You can subscribe there and get my shows biweekly on Thursdays, as well as all of Sam's other shows throughout the week. You can also find all my episodes on fishuntamed.com in addition to backcountry fly fishing articles. You can find me on social media under my name, Katie Burgert, on Go Wild or at Fish Untamed on Instagram. And I will see you all back here in two weeks. All right. Bye, everybody.